Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio, it's time for Family Business Radio. Showcasing outstanding family businesses and the advisors who assist them. Welcome to another wonderful episode of Family Business Radio. I'm your host, Anthony Chen. Today we have two great business and guests joining with us today. And for our first guest, we have Lauren Fernandez from the Fernandez Company. Lauren, thank you for coming to the show. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. So kind of share us with a little story as to what got you into creating your company. Um, It's actually a great story. I'm an attorney by profession. So I spent most of my career here in Atlanta. Um, So I've been in Atlanta for 18 years now. And when I finished Emory uh, Law School and Business School, I, I came out into a pretty rough economy in 2006. And I was fortunate to work with an intellectual property boutique here in Atlanta called Gardner Groff. And so spent much of my career subsequent as an attorney, uh, not only in a law firm, but also in-house doing intellectual property and a lot of product development and commercialization. Eventually, that path led me to um, being recruited over to Focus Brands and so shifted gears into doing product development and licensing for a restaurant, a large restaurant franchisor. At the time, they had over 4,000 uh, franchised and company-owned units and five brands under management there. And so it might be my fault if you see like Cinnabon on vodka or Cinnabon on Airwick, et cetera. Um, I spent some really wonderful time at Focus Brands. And when I left the company, started the Fernandez Company to do with all kinds of restaurants and hospitality groups what I had done at Focus Brands, right? Which was establishing additional revenue streams really for established restaurant brands, helping them spend products off that created um, efficiencies in their manufacturing, but also standardization of some key products and ultimately created a B2C product that they could take and put out into the marketplace and put to retail for their loyal fans and customers. Um, The Fernandez company now expands its services. We now offer all kinds of restaurant support and development um, from back of house management, accounting, finance, the marketing, the operations, the supply chain pieces, all the way through brand development and growth strategies and ultimately investment in these smaller restaurant brands. So in a nutshell, what we do now is we help restaurant brands grow from two to 20 units. So I spend every day working with family-owned businesses, owners, operators, and I have been one myself too. So in the midst of also operating the Fernandez Company, I was an owner and operator of 11 chicken salad chick restaurants in this Atlanta, Augusta, and Athens markets. So you mentioned having worked in the field of IP law, and you listed some big names like Cinnabon, and I'm thinking, well, I don't know how you'd be able to convince me to leave a project like that. So what was kind of the, <laughs> the impetus that got you going into, you know what, I enjoy this, but I want to do something uh, of my own? You know, candidly, as an attorney, I always had a very strong business acumen. I was extremely fortunate to work in not one, but two corporate environments with uh, bosses direct. I directly reported to bosses who saw me as more than an attorney and allowed me to have an active role in the business and really understand the business. And I think just sometimes those situations change. And so when I left focus, I really shifted my practice strongly towards the consulting side to the extent that even 
I would say to the, to the extent of farming out or sending out or referring out some of the legal work so I could focus with my clients on the consulting piece. And for me, that was a major shift in my career. I was in my mid thirties. It was just time. It was time to hang up predominantly being a lawyer and work more on the business side. So for me, starting my own consulting business allowed me to be in control of exactly how much legal work I took took versus consulting work and allowed me to build out exactly the team that I needed to help me execute these visions for clients. So that was, if that answers the question, I think a real important piece for me was the flexibility to be able to dial up and down exactly what my work mix looked like. And you mentioned kind of your, your journey being handed more uh, control of running the business rather than just being a legal or an IT attorney. Um, during that journey, what also prompted you to begin handling, getting more involved, invested as a business operator with restaurants? Because you mentioned you own several chains. Yeah. So, you know, I think it was ex- extremely important to me because I had been a pharmaceutical in-house lawyer. And so I switched over to restaurants and to franchising. My then boss was extremely extremely um, flexible and, and and really felt it was important for me to receive brand training. So I had never really worked in a restaurant before outside of the occasional summer job. So I went and got full brand training in all five of our brands before I ever even touched a contract at that company. And it was really important that I have some operational knowledge before I sit down in the seat and start making judgments about risk to the company and really how to help best our franchisees and our franchise partners. So that was instilled in me very early that kind of walking the walk with our franchisee partners was extremely important. And I don't know another way to do it. I still think to this day, that's the best way for me to operate as not only a consultant, but as a leader in this industry that we always prioritize our franchisees and build systems and methods and procedures that have them in mind. Eventually it led to me investing and owning restaurants, I felt like that was just an important part of my journey. And I was really blessed. I partnered with a fantastic local partner. We started Origin Development Company. And along with my partners, developed and grew the chicken salad chick brand in this market, Athens and Augusta. And in doing so, I think that was one of the most important educations I've ever had in my life because you can theoretically and sit in a boardroom and read PLs all day long, and you can have this sort of 30,000 foot view in aggregate of what it is to be a franchisor and even understand your franchisees, but you don't really truly understand them until you've been one. And I think that's something that really differentiates me and my consulting group now. Almost every single member of our team, without exception, has either owned or operated a restaurant at some point. So we add that level a really deep understanding of what it is to be an operator when we give consulting advice. So it's not just preaching, but you actually have practice and been there. Now I know a little bit about what it's like and how the difficulties and challenges is in opening one business or even one restaurant. Let our audience uh, get a little sneak peek of how many did you open? (laughs) Uh, We bought three restaurants in Kennesaw, Roswell, and Alpharetta. And it took us about three months to stabilize those and really kind of get a handle on the ropes and what we needed to do. And within the next three years, we opened a total of eight restaurants that were traditional brick and mortar, in addition to three locations inside of America's Mart 
And when we sold the business in December 2018, we had three locations under development. So I was incredibly fortunate to have a top-notch team, both at the franchisor and at Origin Development Group, helping me make that happen because you have to be extremely organized, be extremely efficient with resources. And all of that while juggling the flaming chainsaws that is daily operations of restaurants. And so to this day, that family, that group that helped us make that happen will be, you know, always in our hearts. It was not, I'm not a one woman show. I mean, it was definitely, it took a village to make that happen. And, you know, even to the extent I joke about this, but it's dead serious. My my husband, not an employee of the company had a name tag from day one, (laughs) because when we needed help, that's who you call. It's a family business, right? Um, you know, our, our daughter was there kind of helping wash windows if she wanted to earn a few extra dollars. I mean, it's really something that um, does take a village. And so I don't want to take any credit for that. It was a lot of people who helped me. So you really take, put the family and family businesses. So kind of going on, on that topic, what do you think is the most important thing uh, when working uh, with family family owned businesses? So I I think really having a ton of empathy and understanding of what those dynamics do to families and what kind of extra stress goes home with you at night when you can't leave it at the business. And so having owned and operated several businesses over my life, which, you know, when they're, when you're independently owned and operated, I, it is a family business. There's in my mind, there's no way to separate your, your involvement in something that takes that much time and effort and love and attention from the people who are in your daily life. And that's what families do. They support, right? So I think from my perspective, having that deeper understanding of, you know, deadlines don't have the same meaning, you know, they have life event going on. You have to pause for that and just be respectful of the fact that, they are at a different pace. They have a lot to juggle. And so it's a lot of empathy, a lot of understanding, and a lot of patience. And, you know, truthfully, sometimes it just means we step up even a little bit more because we have that empathy for our clients because we have walked the walk and we understand what it is, especially to be a restaurant owner. Mm-hmm. Now, with family businesses, there's um, common struggle in how they can find ways to grow and kind of scale the business. Uh, what are some ways that you can bring in or service that you bring in to help them scale up? Yeah, absolutely. A great question. So when we're talking about scaled growth within family businesses, it's always about an end goal. First conversation we have with our clients is what are we aiming for What's the next five years look like? What's the next 10 years look like? And a necessary part of that discussion is succession planning. Because even if you have a growth plan that you're trying to execute over the next three, five, 10 years, that means generationally, everyone has to be in the boat and in agreement and kind of rowing in the same direction. So having that big discussion about why, what do we want to grow? How are we going to grow it? And coming up ultimately with a growth plan necessarily includes in a family-owned business, some discussion around who's going to be on the payroll, who has what roles, um, what's the transition plan going to look like, what's the exit going to look like for certain members of the family if we need to pull that trigger. So it's a little bit more, I, I don't want to say extra work, but a little bit more mindful in the discussion that we're having. And we try to involve all of the relevant parties 
in a family-owned business when we're doing these growth plans. I think that that's a very important first step. Now, to, to further answer your question, if I may, for restaurants, when we're looking at growth, the, the formula that we use is an equal mix or some sort of mixed custom to the restaurant of licensed product and commercial product development. We use the traditional brick and mortar restaurant growth, right? Just building more restaurants, getting more seats available for the consuming public. We look at airport and other non-traditional growth options for our clients. And then we also look at franchising, possibly a little bit more down the road to get more sales in the door, but also to expose the brand to more people and have partners in that growth journey. So all of this said, what's most important is that everybody's in the boat together and that we're rowing in the same direction. That includes all the members that are relevant of the family owned business. It's almost like you read my mind in terms of my next question. It was going to be more specific towards restaurants or <laughs> own restaurants. What is kind of the, the top three things you look for or things that they should be aware about uh, as they're oh, expanding or looking to expand? That's a great question. And often these are things I, I'm going to re- make some recommendations. These are things that they can even do before they engage us as consultants, but it's often the things that we address even in the early stages of our relationship when we're working with a family owned business. The first and most important thing, and I cannot stress this enough, is clean the books. When you are a family-owned business, your objective is to minimize your tax base, right? So there's a lot of things that are run through that business and a lot of things done to mitigate a profit margin. And so when you're looking to grow, that profit margin actually needs to look as robust as possible. So it means removing extraneous items from payroll, removing expenses from the business that maybe are not absolutely necessary to the business. They're from a tax nexus, they're legitimate. However, on your PL, what we're looking for is to have really good labor metrics that are accurate to people who are actually performing duties in the restaurant. We're looking for minimized food costs so that you're not stuffing weird um, charges into the restaurant that don't belong there. And we're looking for really tight profit margins that are showing consistent profit margin over time. So those that's kind of the number one thing is clean those books and clean them with the mind that someone who's going to be investing in your business or who may want to buy the rights to copy, paste, and repeat your business wants to make sure that there's a legitimate profit margin and that's what they're going to need to see. You know, the second thing is document, document, document. I cannot stress this enough either. There's a lot of stuff that's in the head of an owner operator or in the general knowledge of the family, like the secret recipes, et cetera. But writing those recipes down, writing down and organizing yourself around process and procedure is a lot of work. And that's something that really needs to be done by the people who know. And while we have templates and guides and helpful ways of structuring that kind of process, ultimately it's a data dump from brain to paper. And so that's a process that could take a lot of time as well. You know, I think, I think the third thing that's also very important for most people to understand is distinguish and clarify the brand. And it has to exist that's in a, in a way that's bigger than the person who founded it, started it, and is running it. So what I mean by that is you can still be the mayor of your restaurant. You can be the head, head of the family, head of the business, but we need to be building something that's marketable, repeatable, and that's communicable to the consuming public without it being a cult of personality around one person. So it's really about kind of, again, defining what that brand looks like and making sure that it's not too tied to kind of the the comfort of it being run by a familiar family kind of enterprise, if that makes sense. So 
So how would a business owner or a restaurant owner know that, all right, I'm kind of hitting a wall. What would be signs that they should be looking for to seek someone like you for help? Yeah, so a lot of times people will get to one restaurant and sometimes even two and see successful profits, but they're seeing them as cash in the door instead of as a percent margin. So there's that's one reason that a lot of people come to us is they create instant efficiencies when they're working with us. We can go in and spot how to tune up and fine tune the business so that it's running more efficiently and therefore generating better profit margins for them. So that's kind of one thing we see people come to us when they're stagnant in their margin and they're not really understanding how to get more margin out of the business. I would say that that's number one. Number two is I, I would just call it the, the it's the scalability issue, right? Like you're one person, you're stretched between two or three units. It's exhausting. And you kind of have this epiphany where you go, I can't clone myself. How am I going to grow this thing beyond me trying to juggle all of these different things? And so that's another reason that people come to us ultimately because they realize they can't do it all themselves. And so a big part of our consulting process is educating, coaching, and mentoring those family-owned businesses or that single that owner-operator on what is the highest and best use of their time, what are the things that are good to outsource, what are the things that they can control, what are the things to let go of. And so that's kind of a big turning point for a lot of our clients. I, I, I would say that that's probably about 80% of the time what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now for our listeners who might be themselves in the position or know someone that's in the position, how can they best find you? No, absolutely. The best way to find us is at the fernandezcompany.com. We are locally based in Atlanta, Georgia, but serve clients coast to coast. So you can find us on our website, Um, And once you're on our website, we have links to all of our social media, including LinkedIn. Um, And you can find me on LinkedIn as Lauren Fernandez of the Fernandez Company. Great. Well, thank you for coming to the show, Lauren. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And for our next great guest, we have Tom Burgess with Christian Brothers Automotive. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for having me. Great. So kind of share us with your story of how you got into your business. Um, so I've been in uh, a motorhead all my life. I uh, had fixed up my first car before I got my license, had it painted and mechanically updated and on and on. And uh, I've done motorcycles and boats and cars and classics and you name it. But I was Air Force for 23 years and I moved nine times. And every time I moved, I had to find a mechanic. And knowing a little bit about cars, I knew when I was being taken advantage of. And when I found a shop that uh, that I felt very comfortable with, I was very loyal to him. So um, I left the Air Force, started working for a defense contractor, and was traveling all the time. Two weeks out of every month, I was on the road, and uh, I needed to find something where I felt a little more stay at home. I wanted to open my own business, but I didn't know what to do. And I just happened to see a little tiny blurb in my uh, veterans magazine about Christian Brothers Automotive and started looking into it. My wife said, absolutely not. You're not leaving the corporate world to open some auto shop. It'll never happen. And uh, after quite a bit of uh, slowly bringing her along, she uh, she agreed. Once we visited some shops and she started talking to him, it was clear it, it was not as she put a greasy, grimy automotive shop um, that she wanted nothing to do with. 
So um, that's how it all started. It was just a tiny little ad that happened to be at the bottom of, uh, of, of USA magazine. Mm-hmm. So what attracted you to Christian Brothers on? Because other than just the ad, you mentioned you visited a couple of franchises and it, it sounded like it, it broke the stereotype for her, what she was expecting. Yeah, that's really what it was. It's just as I started to do my research, um, I started to see they, what they talked about was honesty their their theme was love your neighbor as yourself, um, and that that was very attractive to me. That's if I was going to open an auto shop, that's what I would want to be. It's faith based. Uh, I really like that aspect of it. It's not just a name, Christian Brothers. It's very much a faith based organization. Um, and then key was they had never closed one in thirty five years, which in the automotive industry is really rare. Um, you normally have some shops that just won't succeed. And the fact that they had never had one was very obviously a family wife and three kids at the time. I, you know, I wanted something that uh, uh, I had some security with. So that was very attractive to me as well. Mm-hmm. So as you were starting, what are some of the kind of the early challenges leaving the corporate world now into your own business? Yeah, it was, uh, they were huge. The franchise was awesome and getting me set up. They were incredible. They told me down to how many boxes of paper clips to buy. I mean, they, they really handled the whole aspect of opening very well. And so uh, they helped me with recruiting. We had a great team as far as I knew, and we threw open the doors and no cars drove in because they had told me, don't do any advanced marketing like a grand opening, because if you don't open on time for whatever reason, you'll just upset people. So I've got, you know, three mechanics, a service manager, myself, and we have no cars. Um, and this is a very, very, very uh, uh, intense industry right around me. I've got, I think, 70 bays within a three-mile area. So a lot of competition here. So immediately, I didn't have any ads coming out for 30 days. So I just started running around trying to, to get into all the local businesses and, uh, and, and get the name out there. So that was probably the first thing. Marketing was probably the first big challenge. And then the second was time because I was at the counter all day and the bills are piling up and the emails are piling up. So I was at the counter all day waiting on customers and then at my desk all night uh, trying to beat those things down. So it was the first year was absolutely exhausting. My family didn't see me, which is why I opened up a business, right? To have family time. (laughs) And my daughter my daughter from for Christmas that year gave me a card that said, all I want for Christmas is for daddy to close the shop. I was like, oh my oh. gosh, just stabbed me in the heart. Oh, that's rough. That's it's horrible. Rough. So uh, yeah, that was a wonderful year. But it got better after that. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> as you mentioned, you pointed out to so many bays and competitors in your local area. Uh, what did you attribute to your success? Um, I was just amazingly blessed. My first service manager, unfortunately, had a lot of personal issues that hit him right as we opened. And I had to find another service manager and the phone rings. It was like the heavens opened up because the phone rings and it's a guy who's been working for Christian Brothers for 15 years. And he's moving back to Georgia and wanted to know if I needed to hire a service manager. Wow. <laughs> it was like the day after I decided I've got to get a new service manager. So uh, yeah. that was amazing. And when he came on board, he brought uh, one of the best mechanics in Georgia who had also been working for Christian Brothers for 17 years, who wanted to come and work for Ron again and happened to live fairly close. So uh, I just got the right people on the bus. And it, that's been the story all along. Um, you know, Lauren talked about that is, you got you to have the right people. 
Um, so, um, and then networking, I went out and joined the VFW. I was, I joined Rotary. I became a member of the North Fulton chamber, the, the coming chamber. If there was an organization out there that was networking, I was going to be part of it to, uh, to get my face out there. So, uh, that was another big part is getting, you know, getting my name out there. So kind of going into specifically the industry of auto shops. I mean, as you kind of mentioned before, there's, there's, let's say, not-so-nice mechanics out there. What, what do you think causes such a, a negative stigma in people's minds, their experience with mechanics? You know, I think the biggest problem, and what I hear from guys that come in to interview and gals, you know, I'll say, well, why do you want to leave that shop or that dealership? And they say, because I can't, I can't continue to go to church every Sunday having to repent. And it's due to commissions, I think. I think as soon as you have a product that's so complex – that you can just tell people this is the problem and this is what you need. Unfortunately, you can take advantage of people. And that's the biggest thing that we see here is, uh, you know, folks will come in that are service writers somewhere else and say, you know, we're, we're selling what we don't need to sell. Mechanics come to me and say, all we do is replace everything. If there's an AC problem, we replace everything. That way we know it won't come back. We know that it's all brand new, but the customer may not have needed all that. Uh, and there's a little bit more of a risk the way we do it. We try to replace a component. If all you need is a condenser, we're going to replace that condenser. Now, it may be that the, the compressor breaks next week, and then you say, well, wait a minute, I just fixed my AC. Well, we fixed one component. Um, but I think that's the biggest thing is that when you when you have something as complex as a modern-day car, it's like if someone's fixing my computer and they tell me I need a hard drive, I can't argue with them. I say, okay, put in a new hard drive, I guess. Um, but I think that's what's what's hurt the industry so much. It's just too much of an incentive when you can raise your paycheck uh, by selling more than what the customer may actually need. What would you consider to be some of the major challenges facing your industry right now? Um, the lack of technicians. So uh, I think for a period of time, we did not push uh, some of the technical colleges and things. It was everybody needs to go to a regular four-year college. So there's a big void right now of master technicians out there. Very, very hard to find. Um, so that's number one. They're getting older and they're retiring. I'm very fortunate. I have four master techs here. Uh, and then really a modern day uh, auto technician is a computer technician because cars are rolling multiple computers now. Every car has so many of them. And that's a lot of the diagnosing is getting into the, into the computer system to figure out what sensors are not talking correctly. So the biggest challenge down the road I see is the auto manufacturers are trying to retain control of that data, that they don't want to release it to an independent shop. They want to say that's Ford's data because it's in Ford's computer in the car. And of course, the advocates against that, that know the prices are going to skyrocket if the only one that can get that data is the dealership. They're saying that, no, the consumer bought that car. Therefore, the data is, is part of what the consumer purchased. And what really gets fun is modern day cars are now transmitting data live real time back to Ford and telling them, okay, this car is doing ABC. This, it may be a maintenance issue. Um, now who owns that data? Do you want that data to be sold? Cause it also tells where you are, where you're traveled, how fast you've been driving. Do you want the police to know how quick you've been driving down 400? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a huge fight going on about now this, this data that's being transmitted off board and who has rights to that data. Can Ford sell that data to a marketing company? Because now they know where you travel and what stores you go near and go in and park at. Um, it, and all cars, I think they said by 2023, are going to have this, 
this capability where it's all being sent uh, into the uh, Ethernet or the cloud, whatever. Um, so we've got to make sure that that uh, data continues to be released to independent shops like mine. Otherwise, we'll be changing oil and tires, and that's it <laughs> down the road. Wow. Okay. Well, you mentioned about master technicians, and for for us lay people who are not in the mechanical and automotive world, can can we share with us like what what is that equivalent of to something yeah. that we can relate to, you, or like what, how hard is it, or the time commitment to become a master tech? Yeah, yeah. So you'll see this little ASE sticker when you go to a shop. It says we have ASE certified technicians, and it looks really great. Um, but that doesn't mean a whole lot because if one technician takes one of, I think there's 12 ASCs now, takes one of 12, you can now call yourself an ASE certified shop. But that could be as simple as brakes. That, that technician's qualified to work on brakes on any car. Um, when you achieve all of them, you're a master technician. That means you're capable of working on and certified to work on any system on any car by any manufacturer. And that's a pretty significant thing. That's like getting your master's degree. Uh, it's not an easy process and you have to stay certified. You have to retest every so many years. If you reach master technician, you can then test for what's called level one above that. Um, and that's, uh, again, very few. I have three techs that are L1 certified. Then you can get some specialty ones. L2 is diesel certified. I have one of those. Um, but so there's a lot to that that most people don't know. They just see an ASC certification. They say, okay, it's a certified shop. But you have to dig a little deeper to find out uh, just how sort of, you know, what kind of qualifications they really have, who's working on your car. And you mentioned a lot of these technicians nowadays are more like programmers. Can you give us a little behind the scenes look at how does that work? Because for, yeah. for the lay person, we think a programmer is someone who's kind of just sitting in an office with yeah. AC pumping and code in front of the monitor. What does coding look like uh, in a mechanic shop? So number one, you have to have a scan tool that can get into that car's system. A lot of shops will have a generic scan tool made by Snap-on, um, a company like that. And now that's a company that's trying to stay up with all the software for every brand of car that's out there. One of the things that impressed me about Christian Brothers is when you open the shop, you get a DuraBook that has all the factory software in it. So the troubleshooting trees that a technician is using to fix that car, he plugs into the car, he sees what codes come up, which kind of says my shoulder hurts if you were a doctor. Now he starts going in-depth into the car to find out, start to scan and probe different sensors to see if they're reading correctly when he sends a signal to them. Do they answer back the correct way? Um, so we have all the factory scan tools in one big Durabook computer uh, that these guys can use. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're triggering something and they're watching on the high bus as it goes from point to point is when I hit this button for, to open the window, does the signal get to the computer that says I, the owner wants to open the window? The computer sees that signal and sends another signal back to the switch that says, I got that. I'm now going to allow that window open and sends a signal to the motor. It's not like the old days where 12 volts went from the switch to the motor. So the technician with the right tool can hit that button and actually watch that circuit complete via X's and O's to say, okay, I, I've now troubleshooted and eliminated all those different things that I know that's all working correctly. It has to now be the motor because the signal's coming back to the motor. If you don't have that, you're kind of guessing. There's no probing with a 12-volt 
probe to figure out whether something's happening because it's all being done with code now that comes down. I mean, you have little chips in your door panel uh, on your armrest that's talking about whether you can roll the windows up because 30 seconds has or has not gone by since you shut the key off. I mean, cars are, are, are incredibly complex nowadays. You, whenever you touch something, all you're doing in your car is saying, hey, computer, I want to do this. And it's up to whether the computer is going to let you do that or not. So, uh, yeah, that's what they're doing. They're doing a lot of troubleshooting via computer uh, uh, diagnostics. It's like a, we take a lot of things for granted, not even thinking <laughs> with every switch and little button, there's yeah. a computer right behind it. Yep, yep. And many, I think a, a, a new Mercedes will have 30 computers, 25 to 30 computers in it. It's not like you have one central computer like you used to now. They're all over the oh. car. Wow. That's yeah. Great. So, Going into the franchise, what is it like to be running uh, with a faith-based company? Um, you know, it's it's interesting because people uh, kind of wonder about that when you're hiring, you know, how do you do that? And, you know, we just tell people, hey, you know, we are a faith-based industry. And in the end, uh, that whatever that means to you, if you if you're agnostic, we're okay with that. But just know that, you know, when we sit down together, we're going to say a blessing ahead of time. Uh, so we're not out there. We're not, uh, you know, trying to, to convert anybody to, uh, to anything, but on the other hand, uh, it is what it is. You know, I, I thank God every day for, for all the blessings that I have here in the shop and the folks that I have here. And, uh, um, and that's what, it, that's what it comes down to. Uh, when they, when they select franchisees, that's something that they, they look very hard at. Well, especially with the story that I didn't even know about with your, uh, Project manager, I think, was it where one day later a call in and then a mechanic comes right in? I mean, if that's not a sign, I, I, I don't know what is. Well, I'll give you a better one. We were going to open across the street from where we are right now, and they were going to tear up the road about a month after our opening, and the property fell through last second. I had a house purchased up here. My house was sold down in Warner Robins. So we thought, oh, this is horrible. Well, as it turned out, Bethelview, anybody who lives up here knows this was a nightmare construction project and nobody came down this road and it took years to finish the road. So when it was done is when we opened across the street from where we were going to. And I am convinced we would have gone bankrupt. I would have never gotten business in to pay the bills uh, if we had opened just before they ripped up the road. So, again, thank you. Sounds like there's <laughs> a lot of oddly coincidental or what let's call it providence. There you go. So, well, you mentioned a little bit as you were kind of growing up, you know, tinkering with cars and motorcycles. What is your prized project or possession that you have right now? Well, I'm a I'm a motorhead, as I said. So loud, loud cars, loud boats, high horsepower engines. So I just purchased a. a cigarette boat that's got twin uh, 720 horsepower supercharged motors in it. So uh, that's, that's my, that's my new toy. So is there a a, a prize possession out there that you have an eye on that you really want to, as part of your collection? No, I just bought it. I had to sell my GT 500 to to buy that. I had to trade one toy for another. My wife would have (laughs) shot me. Uh, (laughs) Couldn't convince her because he convinced her with the the Christian brothers automotive. I'm still working on convincing on this boat. I don't. She's not on board yet. Trust me. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your your, your amazing story. Uh, what's the best way for someone to find you at your shop? Um, obviously, just go on the internet. Christian Brothers Automotive Incoming. Uh, we're right off of Exit 13, about a quarter mile away from the exit off of 400. 
Um, but yeah, you can just just go on the internet, do a search, and get all our uh, all our info. Well, thank you for sharing, Tom. Yeah, thank you. So this being a November episode, uh, and based on the, some of the answers and, and everyone talking about a lot about family and signs, whether from Providence or what have you, all coming in to shape one's choices in their life and business. Uh, some of the questions that I want to bring both of our guests back uh, to kind of pipe in with their wisdom for our listeners, uh, Lauren and Tom. For those who are kind of on the cusp of, you know what, I want to chart out for myself and leave this corporate job on that. But I'm scared because as you both kind of shared with us, your, your, your struggles and kind of that uncertainty, what is the top two or three words of wisdom or advice that you would give someone that's kind of on the fence right now and, and just scared of taking that first seat? Oh, that's a good question. I'll go, can I go first? Is that yeah, okay? sure, please. Um, okay, so I, I, things I almost wish I had known when I kind of made the leap. Number one, get thee a financial planner because, and I'm not just saying this because you're hosting and you're a financial planner, but it is absolutely critical that you understand what your minimum revenue or run rate is a month. So you understand kind of what it costs for you to live at a kind of very bare bones, you know, no gym membership, you know, no eating out kind of lifestyle to make it happen versus what you might just be accustomed to. And I don't think a lot of people really even know what that number is. So when I am working with independent clients, especially if they are a single owner operator and the whole business revolves around them, that's one of the things we actually work with is like, Hey, what is your personal run rate? Never mind the restaurant. What's yours so that we're making sure that we cover that easily every single year. I think that's the number one piece of advice. The second piece of advice I would give is it is more work, right? It's never easier to do it yourself, to do it on your own or to run it as a family business. But I think it's a calling for a lot of people that it has a trade-off, which there's more work, but there's more reward, right? There's more personal satisfaction. There's more freedom. There's more flexibility. Um, And I do think that that's kind of both sides of the same coin. So on those days that you feel like you're just, you're just getting kicked while you're down and there's really no one standing next to you. Cause it's you yourself and maybe your family's behind you even, but it's still hard. Create a network. I think understanding and meeting up with other people who are like-minded, even if they're not in your industry and phone a friend, you know, like call someone and just say, Oh my God, I just had the worst day and trust those people to hear you, to understand you, your humility and that moment of confession where you're just like, I just need help today. I just need to take my mind off of it. I need someone else to help me think about this problem and use those people um, because they are your, your family of choice, right? They're the family that you choose and they're the family who are going to help you and always be there when they, you know, they're the folks that you, they're, they're the top five numbers in your phone, right? The folks that you call for random advice on things. And we lovingly call that our lifeboat, you know, in my business, we say, who's in your lifeboat. And it may be friends and it may be some extended family, but, you know, know who those people are and use them, I think would be my second big piece of advice. Thank you. And Tom? Boy, there's a whole bunch. Um, I would say uh, my one big mistake I made was when I called owners up um, that own, own franchises and I said, well, what do you, what's your hour? How many hours do you work a day? And they said, oh, you know, 630 to 630. And I said, oh, that's not bad. I can do that easy. But 
I forgot to ask all three of them, does your wife work in the business? And all three of them, their wives worked eight to five handling paperwork. So that was a huge <laughs> error on my part um, because my wife was like, I'm raising three kids. If you do this, this is yours. So uh, I would have certainly hired someone to help. I've got Steve behind me right here who's doing a lot of the books and paperwork and all that stuff right now for me. I would have hired somebody a lot earlier to help with that because it was it was mind-blowing. Um, mm-hmm. And then the second thing, I'll make a pitch for uh, for franchises. There, I could have never opened Tom's Automotive Shop. Um, I mean, they helped with recruiting. There's so many contracts. There's so many vendors you work with, suppliers. Uh, I would have never, ever been able to wade through all that while trying to start a business at the same time in, in recruiting. So I have to say that, that it was a, it was really a wise decision to go with an established franchise. And still now we're always cutting edge with everything that we're doing because I've got a home office looking into what is the latest and greatest for, for marketing, for point of sales, everything. Um, so that's those would probably be the two big things for me is – uh, really understand what you're getting into, talk to owners. And then uh, uh, if you think you're going to go do it on your own, uh, depending upon what the business is and what you, where your field of expertise is, be careful there. Because like I said, I'm very passionate about cars and, and all that kind of stuff, but I could have never opened up a shop on my own, I don't believe. Hmm. So kind of on topic with family businesses and persuading either a spouse or everyone to kind of be on board. Uh, what, what is your advice for those who are kind of just already had their foot in it and they're really struggling balancing both the family time and the business time? How did you navigate and compromise in finding a balance with that? That's never ending for me because um, I could spend 24 hours a day here and I do on, you know, we may go on vacation, but I've always got my laptop and I'm up at you know, still up at five in the morning and I'm trying to knock out everything that I can or I'll be overwhelmed when I get back. So mm-hmm. it's a, it, there was no work-life balance my first year. It was work, period. Uh, and my and my, my family time absolutely suffered. Um, so uh, I'm not sure what I would say. I mean, if you own your own business, it, it doesn't end. <laughs> now, having said that, we, I can take vacations when I want to take vacations now. Um, which is dynamite. And I have the flexibility to leave and go to one of my kids' performances or whatever. And so Lauren touched on that, that there's a lot of benefits uh, once you're up and running and you're established and all. There is a lot of flexibility. But on the other hand, it never goes away. (laughs) Yeah, I will will briefly add to that, Anthony, is I think when you own your own business, it's a 24-7, 365 job because there's no one else to pick it up. And so I think you have to have the humility and the grace and the willingness to be honest with the people in your family when you need help, when you're overwhelmed, you have to communicate those things because when you don't, I think, you know, you're coming home from a long day at work and they have no idea sometimes what's been going on. And so if you, they just read your attitude when you come in the door and that's hard for them to sometimes not know. So I think kind of having that that willingness to openly communicate and to ask for help when you need it. Some of the best advice I got from my husband when we were building origin development group and building all those restaurants was why are you doing this? And it was just a question he would ask me sometimes. And it wasn't to be mean. It was kind of more like the, the intention was, is this really the highest and best use of your time? Why haven't you trained someone else on your team to do this? Why isn't there a vendor doing this for you? 
you're not a marketing expert. Why are you doing, you know, why are you designing an ad at two in the morning for your grand opening? You know, and I, and I say this humbly because he was right. And I think now the difference is I'm constantly asking that question because if I don't, if I, if I can find someone else to do it, I will hand it off and build those processes and procedures because that's the only way that I will have any free time as we scale and grow our own business to spend with my family. And so I have to prioritize that as an agenda item. Can I shovel past this off on someone else? Can I train someone else? Can I have a vendor do this and pay them for their time? I think that that's the best way I can answer that question. Cause otherwise you, you know, he's right. You're going to end up in the business all the time. <laughs> well, thank you both for coming on the show and sharing your words of wisdom and your origin stories. Thanks for having me. So this show is sponsored and brought to you by yours truly, Anthony Chen with Lighthouse Financial Network. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., or RAA, is member FINRA, SIPC. RAA is separately owned and other entities or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of RAA. Our main office address is at 575 Broad Hollow Road in Melbourne, New York. 11747. You can best reach me at my email at Anthony Chen, C H E N, at LFNLLC.com or by phone 631 465 9090. And my extension is 5075. Until next time, have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everyone.